0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today has pursued many careers, including as an estate buyer, an actor, a casting director for Universal Studios, but Robert Teitelbaum's family history is where the passion shows itself through two books. One, his autobiography, Frogs and Snails and Mobster Tales, written with Cindy Carter, and the prequel, Hiding in Plain Sight, co-written with his wife, Carol, both published by Teitelbaum Publishing. Robert grew up in Al Capone's shadow, and his parents, Abe and Esther Teitelbaum, were mob lawyers, deeply involved in the activities of the Chicago, New York, and California branches of organized crime. Both books are available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Robert Teitelbaum, go to com. And Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. There's a lot to unpack in these two books and in your life. So why did you decide to write these two books? I decided to write them because
1: everybody kept asking me questions about them, uh, about my family. And uh, I felt it would be a lot easier to spend a couple of years in writing them. And I did.
0: And how much influence has your wife, Carol, been in getting your story told? She's a co-author of one of the two books. That's correct. Carol's been with me. Uh, I was in the
1: I went into the Marine Corps in 1962. We got married in 63 and we're still married 58 years later. She knows my father very, very well, my mother very well. And when my father was at our house, he would tell us the stories. And then when my mother was at our house, she would tell us the same story
0: and they were together. Amazing. But Amazing. You, uh, the way you we stated the, the it, you stated that, which is actually part of the book. You mentioned when your father visited, he told a story or stories. And then separately, when your mother visited, she told story or stories. And while they were the same, obviously, the two of them were not together at that point. So how did that happen?
1: They, uh, My father was a womanizer, and he loved being elsewhere. And there was lots of times where he wasn't there. And, uh, he got married a second and a third time. And, there uh, are a lot of kids. I got a lot of brothers and sisters. And, and that's the story of my father. <laughs> my mother, we got stuck on the Loveless Ranch in Indio in 1947 from Chicago. The ranch was built by Walter Kirshner for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So it was a beautiful estate. I remember vividly the 11 and a half foot walls around the three-acre compound. And I always thought it was for
0: keep people out, but actually it was to keep me in. Interesting. Well, it wasn't just you. It was uh, siblings as well. Siblings as well, yes. Yeah. Your story is unique because you had a couple things going on that most people don't experience in their entire lives. That is, you have two parents who work for the mob as attorneys, and then you also had the issue of, of abuse as well. So, You've got two things going. How did that affect you? And was Carol aware of all of this when she first met you, or did you sort of wait a while to let her know about your background?
1: Well, I I met Carol when she was 13. I was working at Bishop's Melrose Market, uh, Melrose and Fuller, and she lived on Fuller. And uh, we... um, uh, we became friends. And when I went in the Marine Corps, she started writing me. I don't know how she ever got my address in the Corps, but I started writing her back and we wrote and uh, fell in love. And uh, basically, I told Carol everything about me because I didn't believe that we should start a marriage with, with having everybody having secrets. And that
0: comes from your own experience. That's correct. Was it difficult at first when you had to unload in that sense or reveal things that you were uncomfortable about
1: no no i just i, I knew it for, as a fact and i i was able to tell carol everything because
0: she was so easy to talk to that's uh, half a marriage isn't it you can have communication so yeah that works and, out too and best friends yeah. Well, that. Say, how did
1: you last 58 years? I said, well, we're still best friends.
0: Yeah. That, that helps. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially when you move and you're dealing with all, all this stuff. When your parents, both of them were lawyers, hmm. both worked for the mob and specifically, obviously, not just as one guy, but Al Capone was a big part of that. Your mom was the side of the firm, I'll call it, that did the research. Absolutely. And your dad was the one that went into court and dealt with the judges and the prosecutors and and all of that. Exactly. My mama was the great researcher, and uh, she would overturn
1: every stone in an item uh, that was put in front of her and find the way to be able to have a legal argument on why this person or the people should not be in this lawsuit or in this criminal case. And uh, she would give it to my father. My father had total recall. And he would read it and throw it away and go to court. Wouldn't even bring a briefcase. And he was a 95 percenter. And that's why they did so well. They were the darlings of Chicago from 1933 to 47. Everybody needed them. Because if it
0: wasn't for the lawyers, there wouldn't have been mobsters. They needed protection, and they got protection from the, some some of the cops and the judges, but they really needed the lawyers to work miracles and keep them going. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever sit down with your mother or your father and ask them why they chose that, not that profession, but that life? They had an opportunity to be great attorneys in all other aspects of, of the field, but they chose to represent organized crime. Why? They didn't
1: actually choose it. Uh, my Uncle Ben and Felix, who were notorious fire starters in 1900, they uh, my Uncle Ben became an attorney, even though he had all this criminal background. And they were both sentenced to 20 years in prison. And all of a sudden, there was no case. There was no no record of them ever going to prison for one day. He became... Because he was friends with Torrio, uh, he became Capone's attorneys and the families and uh, his mama and his pop and uh, and his brothers. And he uh, was there until he started. He was a terrible gambler. He was a, uh, especially uh, being connected to the mob and being a terrible gambler is a bad thing because he had all this information on who's going to fix what or whatever. But he still was a degenerate gambler, lost $30,000. The boys came to him and said, listen, you're going to have to pay or we'll take your mama's house, your Esther's house. So my grandmother, Tilly Milnick, and Teresa Capone actually had been friends during this time. They were met through my Uncle Ben and Felix. They exchanged recipes. Uh, <laughs> Teresa would show him how to make lasagna and, and good sauce. And my grandmother would show them how to make matzo balls and, and, and wonderful things. And they were good for, and noodle kugel. That was their favorite. But here's what happened. Tilly goes to Teresa and says, listen, you can't take my house. It's, it's $30,000 and, and we paid for it. We worked hard for this. Is there any way? That you can talk to your son, and, he can, and Esther and Al can be your attorneys. And that'll erase the debt. And Teresa did this. And that
0: is how my parents became working for the mob. Now, they could have, at some point along the way, chosen to not work for the mob, but no. I guess not, right? No. <laughs> well, not if you value your uh, life. <laughs> yeah. In other words, once you're in, you're in. Well, so, so they agreed, no, yeah. That's Carol in the mother, background you're hearing, yes. But my mother also and always said, no matter who you are,
1: you deserve the right to have proper legal representation,
0: no matter who you are. How did your mother... Find these loopholes. You're talking about a time and day when there was no internet, there was no digitization of material. There were the law books, and there was legal paper, and and that was it. And she had evidently, from reading your book, she had an extensive law library. And she then when she moved to California, took it with her. Yeah, took it with her. her. So she she just had this penchant for being able to go in and know exactly where to look to understand to understand. What words meant,
1: and how they were formed, and and how the the different appeals could be made, and she would find it to the letter of the law and write it right out. Give it to my pop. Pop gets people off. Everybody likes them and besides that, they were getting paid. Well, oh, yes, my parents were making a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a client a year, just just as a, um, retainer. a retainer yeah you know not even going to court
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing did, did he have did, did your dad have a good relationship with the prosecutors that lost to him they could they were sat there with their mouths open
1: he didn't you know he if he didn't have to deal with somebody he uh, he'd wipe his hands like this and never talk to someone again but my mom did also the chicago land and trust case on her own, which means that you cannot be thrown out of your uh, your
0: houses or your property without proper legal representation. Did they ever find it? And this again, I don't know if they would reveal this to you. Did they ever find it an anomaly in the sense that, especially your mom, she's looking for loopholes that were legally sound and correct, mm-hmm. and yet she's working for people who didn't really care about the law, and did what they wanted because you mentioned about the the case you just mentioned a moment ago about people safe in their in their houses, and yet <laughs> it was because the house was about to get taken over by the mob that your parents agreed to become lawyers. So it's it's almost a a conundrum there. Yes, uh, my mom realized they were making a lot of
1: money, and she could and she had a huge family: uh, grandma, and grandpa, ten brothers and sisters, uh, hundreds of relatives. And uh, she was always there to help. And she felt that uh, you know, listen, one hundred twenty-five thousand a year and not doing anything, and uh, and maybe not doing anything for them all year, but one case, everybody's happy. So she uh, she continued. She um, she was very very good friends with Ben Siegel. She knew him when uh, my father and her got together because Ben. Siegel, Al Capone, and my father, they live very close to each other. You know, it's like people say, oh, uh, Capone spoke fluent Italian. That's not true. He never spoke any Italian. He was
0: born and raised in Brooklyn. You know, he knew some words, but he wasn't speaking Italian to anybody. A couple of our listeners who may not recognize the name, he's also known as Bugsy Siegel. He never liked to be called that. But I never called him that my right.
1: father said he would punch
0: people in the face it sure. was but out. but in the public world he was known as as Bugsy Siegel in that sense were your parents despite i'm sure all parents have flaws your parents decided to go down this this route or route depending on what part of the country you're hearing this did they ever express regret about what life and career they cho- careers they chose or was it just not discussed with the children no, not
1: at all. They never regretted. They never regretted having to buy the Fine Arts Building in Chicago or the 77 Randolph Building in Chicago, and putting their their law offices on the top of the Fine Arts Building. Oh, I mean, they had everything anybody could ever ever want. You know, they uh, they would. <laughs> this is very funny. In their house, they had three-story house. And the top floor was a music room, and it was, it was uh, what was it? Not limestone. It was a marble floor. And the Chicago Symphony would come over. The string sections, um, most of the time, they'd come up to the house. They would walk up the three stairways, and they would work in that music room, and they would play, and the house was full of beautiful music. And then a lot of times when they were doing big things, the whole symphony, the you know, it was hold it, holded, it, had, it could hold fifty people up there, and they would come up and practice great acoustics, and they went through the house, and and I was I was a baby, and I still uh, remember beautiful sounds. I don't relate it to uh, you know different music and stuff like that, but I was I I relate it to the to that's how it happened because I asked. I asked my mama uh, when we moved to
0: Indio, I said, where's all the beautiful sounds? And she told me the story. Was she amazed that you remembered the sounds from that young of an age? No. No, She seemed to know exactly what I was talking about. And she was right there. My mama was very passionate about her kids. The Uh, background that you had, though, with the parents and then the abuse later on, does anybody come out of this kind of family and become normal, or in other words, Carol would know this term reaction formation. Were you a totally different person as a result of going through all the experiences that you did growing up in all these different places?
1: Well, the abuse that I had was from people who were hired to protect us.
0: Well, abuse is abuse, whether it's from your parents or someone hired. I mean, it's still abuse. It
1: was never from my parents. Okay. It was from bodyguards and People who ran the Loveless Ranch, and it was uh, not only me, but my brother and uh, my two sisters, and my youngest sister Linda. She died
0: at the end of forty-seven. So we had a lot, we had a lot of a lot to mourn there. You did,
1: but, uh, yeah, but uh,
0: no, I didn't mean to imply that your parents were abusive to you. It's sort of bifurcated. It's your parents' life and career, and then it's the experiences you had through people that they hired. But my question still stands, though, is that. As a result of that, do you consider yourself fairly normal coming out of that? It took a long
1: time until we started a group called It Happens to Boys, and uh, we've talked all over the country, and we've talked with Betty Ford Center and and the different places, and we've started, uh, we have a group every week that we talk to men, even first-timers, they can come into the group and they can listen to 10, 15 stories of what we're talking about, and how we we never are totally recovered but we can live a productive life by understanding why
0: this happened and
1: it was never our fault
0: and that takes a lot of insight to get to that point and when you realize it's not it took, your fault it took me a long time but I was
1: but by talking uh at conferences and and uh many things that Carol put together it helped me immensely it, I never would have been able to write the book before that. It's uh, It's been a long time. And my abuse uh, happened uh, while I was on the Loveless Ranch. And that was so many years ago.
0: And, and it's so isolated too, isolating too, because it's not as if you're in the middle of a big city where you could reach out for help.
1: No, we were behind 11 and a half foot walls. <laughs>
0: Did you ever go to your parents and talk to them about what was going on? Or was that just the way the dynamics were that you didn't? They were always working. They could all be were, but still they're, they're kids. So, uh, well, yeah. they,
1: we had, we had people looking after us. Um, we had, uh, you know, the house was so large. I in our living room is 66 by 44. My bedroom was as big as most people's houses. Amazing. But the, situa- but the situation was, is that we had so many people working to, uh, uh, wash clothes. We would have people to, uh, clean rooms all the time. We had, Probably 15 or 20 workers for our 10 groves of date trees and, uh, and grapefruits. And it, and listen, there was a, a five room secret uh, service house that we used to go hide in when things were going bad. But no, my parents, I believe they knew that, uh, because I would be beaten and I would, uh, I would have marks on my back and they will ask me how I got marks. And I would say, uh, well, the, the chauffeur hit me with a, with a, a brick or a, or a, a two by four, threw something at me. And uh, they would go have a talk. And then another day I would get uh, nailed for it again for telling my parents. So boy, that's, I learned, to, I learned early to keep my mouth shut. Yeah.
0: Boy. And, Not and like ca- today. Yeah. In cases like yours, it's almost better to be poor and living in a shack with, your parents and not be in a gilded cage where you're subjected to that kind of abuse. That's true. Yeah. When you were working in casting at Universal for all those years, at that part of your life, were you still uncomfortable enough not to talk about it with anybody? I mean, Carol knew about it, but what about anybody that you work with in the, in the industry? I was, I was
1: too busy. Carl Brendel called me in. I was a bit actor at the time. And he said, Robert, you're never going to be a great actor. Why don't you come in with me? I'll teach you everything I know. So I spent five years, uh, with Carl Brendel. The first year I was there, he pushed all his work on my desk and said, this is how you do it. And you do it. I had lots of, lots of secretaries, people to show me things. And I was casting anywhere from 600 people a day to 6,000. I did some of the greatest shows that you could. Uh, I just had an interview about about my book somewhere else, but here's the situation.
0: All they wanted was my Vita. Did I send you my Vita? Yes, I have a copy of it. It's extensive. <laughs> so but <It's> two hundred movies. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think you sublimated your childhood experiences and that allowed you to be extremely productive during those years in terms of casting? It gave me tunnel vision and I'm able to
1: do I was able to do ten to fifteen shows a day by myself. Amazing. And Absolutely And without my uh, my three secretaries and six people to answer 90 phones, I had uh, <laughs> I had a lot of help. And but if you look at look at my Vita, you will see that I was hired for the look of the shows. And that's why people trusted me, because I knew what people looked like and I knew who could play what. And I had uh, over 10,000 extras working for me, and about 3,000 actors.
0: So uh, you didn't do production design, you did people design. People design. Yeah. This was before emails, right? When you first started with casting or not? <laughs> yes. Am I right? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> but I had phones. I, no, had- I know there are phones, but still, that's pretty impressive that you are able to pull that off, uh, that amount of casting.
1: But at 11 o'clock at night, I would get a call from Baywatch and say, hey, we're pushing the show. Uh, three hours, you have to make <laughs> 120 phone calls. Wow. And I would do
0: it. I yeah. would
1: just do it and go back to bed and go back to work at six in the morning. Does it become a blur to you after a while when you're doing that amount of casting? No, hmm. no, because uh Carl taught me to, if I was doing nine shows, I put all nine shows in front of me and I have them numbered. And I, I know exactly because the ADs would call me from six until eight and tell me exactly what they needed. And then at uh, 9 o'clock, all the phones would go crazy. 90 phones would all light up, and my my uh, secretaries would answer the phone, and they would call out a name, and they would also put it on my screen in front of me, who it was, and I would say, I would uh, just put up, you know, if it was on, on uh, let's say I was doing Quincy that day, and that's number nine, I would just hold up the fingers, I'd say nine and four. They'd call me at four on a certain line, and I would know when I picked up that phone that I was hiring that person for Quincy. And it was—I I brought a uh, a whole different meaning to casting than Carl did. Carl did it; he was brilliant, a brilliant man. And when he left, I wound up being head of casting for a year, and then when they closed my casting department. The next day, I opened L.A. Casting, and I owned L.A. Casting for 25 years. You didn't so miss a I beat. Took, I took all the shows, and I took all the people that were
0: working for me at Universe
1: <laughs> and moved them into well,
0: <laughs> Just well, out of curiosity, why did they end up closing the casting office? Wouldn't that be a necessity? It, no, it wasn't. It, this was the extra casting. This was the stunts. This
1: was uh, hand inserts. This was voiceover. The stuffs that other casting directors that were in the tower, and I was across the street because we caused a lot of a lot of grief for them before, <laughs> when we were in the tower. Uh, they said, "You're you're across the street from the main building now," and we, that's where we went and we did that. I did that for five years, and I learned everything I did from Carl Brendel, and God bless him, he was a good man.
0: Do you think that your tunnel vision, in a way, was a good defense mechanism and allowed you the time and space to at at this point write these two books because yes. of that
1: yes absolutely i wrote this uh, way after i was uh, out of casting but uh, the situation the tunnel vision was good because i could when you get a you get triggered by something someone says i would take it in and i would move it out I just moved to something else that I'm doing and I could deal with it that way because I do not have to sit here and rehash all the beatings and the rapings and everything else that went on in my family with my brothers and sisters and myself.
0: Because it's all out there. It's in the books. It's in the book. Yeah. That's a great way to, I'll use this term and you know what I mean. It's more substantial than this term, but it's a great way to vent But it's not just venting, it's getting it out. It's a catharsis so that you can deal with it. And you know what Mel Brooks said about it? No, tell me. It's in the book. Why did I miss that? I didn't see Mel Brooks' name in the book. How did I miss that one? (laughs) What did he say?
1: He said it's in the book.
0: Oh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you're right. I missed (laughs) it. Well, looking at the two books and looking at your life, and we have a, a minute or two What was the lesson you learned about life, the most important lesson, besides obviously your relationship with Carol after all these years, and you can trust her implicitly, and maybe other family members you can trust now too, but what was the most important lesson you learned from writing those two books, besides the cathartic value of it? Did it give you some insight that you carry with you forward? Always tell the truth.
1: Write what you know, but be truthful about what you write.
0: That's a hard lesson for people to It is. It to is learn. because people will exaggerate too much. Right. But don't you also leave yourself vulnerable, open to attack if you are truthful in what you write? I can see the positive and I can see some of, a little bit of the negative in that sense.
1: I, I find it as positive. The negative is just you throw it away and say, hey, you know, everybody has their own opinion, but really the truth comes through and it can, you know, reading the book may Make you cry. We give our books out to the recovery centers because we find that the recovery centers that we talk to, that a lot of the people, uh, one out of three girls, one out of four boys, sexually abused before they're 18. And that's what where the alcoholism and the drug addicts and everything came from. And so I give them books so they can read this book and see my experience and take something from me that I give to them. And it's very important. And it's important to me to be able to do that.
0: And it's a legacy in a way. It is. That's what I have. I think it's a great way to end it. My guest has been Robert Teitelbaum, whose autobiography, Frogs and Snails and Mobster Tales, was co-written with Cindy Carter. And the prequel, Hiding in Plain Sight, co-written with his wife, Carol, both published by Teitelbaum Publishing. Robert grew up in Al Capone's shadow, and his parents, Abe and Esther Teitelbaum, were mob lawyers deeply involved. In the activities of the Chicago, New York, and California branches of organized crime. Both books are available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Robert Teitelbaum, go to Teitelbaum Publishing. That's T-E-I-T-E-L-B-A-U-M, publishingcom Robert, thanks for being on the show, and thank you, Carol, as well. It's our pleasure, and thank you very much for having me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.